0: of Genesis, and uh, i got to tell you, Genesis is a great book of the Bible. Let me ask you a question. If you were called into the front of a room somewhere, and you were asked to describe yourself with just one simple sentence, so it's a simple sentence, there's no buts or ands or yets involved here, just one simple sentence, how would you describe yourself? What would you talk about? Uh, would you give a description of what you do? Your likes, your interests, your hobbies, who you know? I mean, that's a hard question, isn't it? How, How do I encapsulate who I am in a single, simple sentence? Well, in the book of Genesis, we find here in God's Word that God describes Himself with a pretty simple sentence, doesn't He? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's one of those sentences that if you read it quickly, you can kind of gloss over it and say, okay, well, let's move on. Let's get to the next part of the story. No big deal here. Or you might just simply dismiss it and say, oh, okay, well, they're saying that, but that's a little ludicrous. I mean, that's crazy to think about. Or... It's one of those sentences that if you just kind of let it rest and marinate and and absorb into your mind and into your heart, you stand in awe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how God chose to unveil himself. He wanted humanity to know that he is the creator. Before we look, though, into this unveiling, I want to talk to you a little bit about this book of Genesis. It's important when you open up a book of the Bible to kind of know the context, the lay of the land, if you will. Now, if you haven't been in church very much or you've never really studied the Bible, a couple of things to understand about the Bible. The Bible is broken up into two major sections. There's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. There's 66 books to the Bible, so the Old Testament comprises 39 books, the New Testament 27 books. The first book of the Bible is the book that we're looking at, Genesis. Uh, I believe that it was written by Moses. Uh, The first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch, also known as the Books of Moses, uh, so that we believe that Moses wrote these books. Now, why do we call this book Genesis? Well in ancient times it was common to name a book by its opening word. So the first word of the book of Genesis and also by extension the Bible is the Hebrew word beresheth, which means in the beginning. So now you take that word and you go thousands of years later to this translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. It was written in 250 B.C. They had taken the Hebrew and they had translated it into the Greek text. And that's where we get this idea of our word, Genesis, which carries a very similar meaning. It's the perfect title for the book. beginning. Because there's so many beginnings in the book of Genesis. It's the beginning of our knowledge of God. I mean, it's his preface. Uh, Right here from the start, there's just God and it's all about God. And God's the only one in the picture, We also see the beginning of our understanding of creation. You see, when Moses is writing the book of Genesis, he's writing into this culture where there's this chaotic understanding of how the world came to be. I mean, there's gods and they're fighting and there's bloody battles and this God uses this God's body to create the earth. But here in the book of Genesis, Moses gives us this very rational God who creates the universe in a very rational manner. It's also the beginning of our understanding of us. We learn about our beginning. We learn about how we were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But we also learn of just how broken we are. We are wonderful. We are awful. We see it right here in the book of Genesis. It's also the beginning of our understanding of God's plan for salvation. How he would deal with our brokenness. You see, woven throughout the book of Genesis, you start seeing this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ form. And as you read through that Old Testament, as we saw in our series in Old Testament Christmas, that picture becomes clearer and clearer. If you're thinking of it like a, a flower, there's a bud. And by the time that we get to the Gospels, it comes into full bloom. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ and God's plan for salvation. But it all begins right here in the book of Genesis. We need this book. We need all of the books of the Bible. I'm probably sure that you've heard someone say, or maybe even thought to yourself, "Ah, I'm a New Testament Christian. I just read the books of the New Testament, and I kind of chuck out Revelation, because that one's kind of weird. But I read all the rest of those books, and I come to understand God through them. But all of God's scriptures are God-breathed. They're meant for your formation and for your growth. Now, I understand that when you get into the book of Genesis, there's these kind of weird questions that we're asking ourselves like did God create everything in six literal days was there this historical Adam and Eve what about the ages of people described in these genealogies this Methuselah who lives like almost a thousand years or the account of a worldwide flood and those are great questions I got to tell you we're going to deal with them but More than having these questions answered, we need the book of Genesis because it introduces us to God, to ourselves, and to his great plan of salvation. It is in this book, just moments after the fall, right when Adam and Eve have completely broken God's rule, that we see him outline the fact that Jesus would come. That's good stuff. Now, when you're looking at a book of the Bible, the structure of the book is very important. You might think to yourself, why would I care about the structure? Well, it gives us a road map. It, it helps us to understand the lay of the land. Uh, you can break up Genesis into two big sections. Chapters 1 through 11, the primeval history, which is the early history of planet Earth, and then Genesis 12 to 50, which covers the patriarchal history, which is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These patriarchs who would eventually become the nation of Israel. Now, I am not going to be dealing with Genesis uh, continuously. Uh, So we're going to break it up into three volumes. I'm dealing with the first 11 chapters. That's why you'll notice that um, it says volume 1 on the screen. And we're going to call this series Unglued. It'll be about 10 weeks, maybe a little more than that. And we'll take a little break, and then we're going to move into the second volume, and that's chapters 12 to 36, the Abraham narratives all the way through um, Jacob. And then we'll deal with uh, that one and call it unconventional and then move forward into the Joseph narratives in 2019 and we're calling that one unhindered. So the big idea. I love understanding a book through its big idea. The first five stories provide a structure that help us to see the big idea of the book of Genesis Uh, The stories are the fall, Cain and Abel, the sons of God, and marrying the daughters of man. Wouldn't you like to know what that one means? Well, you're going to have to stick around to find out. The flood, the Tower of Babel, and they present us a pattern or an understanding of how God deals with mankind uh, the pattern begins with sin. The sin is described in the story. Then we move on to a speech where God announces a penalty over the sin that they have committed. And then we see grace. God brings grace into this situation to ease the pain that sin has caused. And then punishment. God deals with the sin because he is a just and holy and righteous God. But above everything, Genesis is about God's grace. His grace. No matter how much sin increases, God meets humanity with oceans of grace. No matter how much sin unglues everything, God holds everything together with his grace. So that when Adam and Eve are punished, God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is removed from his land, but he's given a mark so that no one will harm him. We see in the story of the worldwide flood that God spares Noah so that humanity can continue. No, it's there in the story that you think to yourself, well, okay, humanity gets a fresh start now. Noah comes back on the scene. He's going to make everything good. It's going to be great. But then we come to this instance of the Tower of Babel, and uh, man is building up this tower so that they can reach to God, and God says, whoa, no way. And he comes down, and he disrupts the languages. In fact, as you're reading this occurrence, it seems like there's no pattern continuing. Where's the grace? He just disperses everyone. How is God going to deal with this issue? And then the Bible stops at Genesis 11, right? And we have nothing else to read. Not true. Genesis 12 picks up the story. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God calls Abraham, and he makes this unconditional promise to Abraham that extends to him and to his family and to all of mankind. And when we get into the stories of these patriarchs, you sit there and think to yourself, like, boy, this is a rough bunch. I mean, couldn't you have picked someone else, God, other than this trickster named Jacob? It's all quite unconventional. But as the story moves forward, it's not about Jacob, it's about God's grace. Even when the patriarchs fail abysmally, God's promises endure so that what Paul says in Romans is true. Where sin increased, grace abounds all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what I see as I read the book of Genesis? I see that God values people. In fact, in Genesis, we see that God was more interested in Abraham than he was in the entire created universe. God is more interested, by extension then, if he was interested in Abraham in that way, God is more interested in you and attaches more value to you than he attaches to the entire physical universe. Let that one sink in for just a moment. So that what Jesus says to his disciples hits the human heart even deeper. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Wow. Should we get into the story? I think so. Let's look at those first two verses. Genesis 1. Again, if you don't know how to find it, just open up the Bible to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1. There's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you if you don't have one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now who's the main character of the Bible? When you think about the Bible, I want to give you a little hint. It's not one of us. It's not all of us. The main character of the Bible is God. In the beginning, God. Now you might think to yourself, but as I read the pages of the Bible, I mean, boy, it sure talks a lot about us. That's true. It does talk a lot about us, absolutely. But we are the damsel in distress. God is the knight in shining armor. We are the ones who are groping about in the darkness, trying to find our moral way. God is the one who shines forth light into the darkness so that we could see his revealed truth. We are the ones who are destined to die. God is the one who comes into the world and dies so that we could live. The Bible is God's story of rescuing humanity. And he is the main character. So I want to see three movements of God in these verses. The first is God in time. In the beginning, God. The story starts with God. God's name used here in this first chapter of Genesis is Elohim, and it dominates the page. It's written 32 times. The name emphasizes God's majesty and His power so that when you read the name Elohim in the Hebrew text, you're thinking of this universal, cosmic, all-powerful, transcendent, outside-of-time-and-space kind of God. This is the kind of God we're talking about. And it's, the Bible's making a pretty clear point by saying uh, in the beginning, God, it's profound, God's existence is axiomatic. It's self-evidently true. You'll notice in the Bible that there's not these logical propositions laid out that says, oh yes, and let me just kind of uh, build logical steps to prove that God exists. Let me give him some kind of defense here. The Bible never does that. It just simply understands that God exists. Move on with the story. And basically, if you can't get past this first sentence in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, well, there's really no point of reading the rest of the Bible. It does us no good. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But there is a God. No further argument given in the Bible. We also learned something foundational about God through this name Elohim. The name God in this text is plural in the Hebrew. The verb create is singular. So get this. Plural God creates singular universe. Plural God creates singular universe. So in this first sentence of the Bible, God lets us know that he is plural even as he is singular. I mean, just let that one kind of sink in a little bit. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, Hear, o Israel, the Lord is one. But then we see in other places of the Scriptures that there's different persons of this Trinitarian relationship. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, which is a messianic prophecy of the Son of God, when you look at chapter 1, verse 26, God is pronouncing the creation of mankind and he says in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. And then when you get to the next verse, God says, God created man in his own image. Here again, plural to singular, in this text. Now some people try to say as they look at verse 26 that this is God speaking with the angelic hosts and it's not a Trinitarian dialogue. But i got to tell you, that doesn't make any sense. How are angels helping God create humankind in His image when they're not in His image? And were they involved in the creation of Adam? We don't see that in the text. This is God's self-revelation of who He is. He is one In three persons, the Trinitarian God. The phrase in the beginning means the beginning of time. It's not some moment in time where the creation of the earth begins. It's boom, time as we know it starts here in the text. Now just think about this as a mind-blowing reality that could only be true of the living God As creatures bound by time and space, I mean, we cannot conceive of an existence outside of time and space. To God, time is his own invention. Did you let that one hit you? He created it to accomplish His purposes. He can enter into time and space and He can create matter within time and space. Just as He did as when God the Son came and He was born and He lived among us, so He stepped out of eternity, He came into space. And He also generates matter, doesn't He? In the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus multiplies the loaves so that He must be something different than we are. Yet, God is never constrained by any of these. He's not constrained by time. He will not be encumbered. There's no distance too far for him. And there are not too many places for God to be at once. He is everywhere present. Everywhere in time and space. Moses tells us in Psalm 92, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Elihu reflects on the wonder of God in Job 36.26, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. So that whichever way that you look in time, whether you're looking at eternity past or this present moment or eternity future, God is there. He is there in all places at all time. He is the timeless One, and there's none like Him. As we move forward from God and time, we see the next part, God in the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That expression, the heavens and the earth, is, in the Hebrew, uh, their best way of saying the universe. They didn't have a word for the universe. We know a lot more about the universe today than they did. But as far as they could tell, everything that was possibly conceivable is encapsulated in this phrase, the heavens and the earth. The word create is only ever used of God as the subject. It never has a man or a woman creating anything. So we tend to talk about people creating or being creative And it's alright to speak like that, but when the Bible uses this word, it's only and ever only used of God. God is the only one who can create. The The verb carries the idea of both complete effortlessness and creato ex nihilo. The idea of God creating matter from nothing by just the simple thought and the will to do so. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of, out of things that are visible. I mean, think about it. The artist creates a picture, but he uses a canvas and acrylics and paints to do so. An engineer constructs a building, but he needs materials. He needs glass and steel and concrete. But God didn't need any materials. Only his thoughts and his will and this universe that we can't even wrap our minds around explodes into existence. One day a scientist approached God and said, God, we don't need you anymore. Science has finally figured out a way to create life out of nothing, and we can do now what you did in the beginning. Oh, God says, is that so? Well, yes, says the scientist. We can take dirt and form it into a human likeness and make it come to life, thus creating a man. Really, God says, that's very interesting. I'd like to see you do that. So the scientist bends down and he takes some dirt and he starts forming it into a human. And as he's doing it, God says, no, no, no. You get your own dirt. (laughs) What does it mean that God and only God is the creator? It means that he owns it all. He owns everything. He owns your resources. He owns the way that you choose to use your time. He owns the world. He owns the flowers on the earth and the birds that are flying in the sky and the sea creatures that are swimming. He owns my very life. Now, this is one of those principles from the Bible that we tend to recoil from. But God reminds Job, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It belongs to God. In the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Norm Geisler and Frank Turek tell of Einstein's Dilemma. You see, it was 1916, and Albert Einstein didn't like where his calculations were leading him. If this theory of general relativity was true, it meant that the universe was not eternal but had a beginning. Einstein's calculations indeed were revealing that there was a definite beginning of time. All matter, all space, all the things that we knew about. This flew in the face of his belief that the universe was static and eternal. Einstein later called his discovery irritating. He wanted the universe to be self-existent, not reliant on outside causes, but the more he looked at it, this darn thing just seemed to be one giant effect. In fact, Einstein so disliked the implications of general relativity, a theory that is now proven down to the fifth decimal place, that he introduced a a cosmological constant into his uh, equation to prove that the universe was static. Many called this the fudge factor. But Einstein's fudge factor did not fudge for long. In 1919, British cosmologist Arthur Eddington conducted an experiment during a solar eclipse which confirmed that general relativity was indeed true. The universe was not static but had a beginning, Edekin was not happy about the implications either. He later wrote, philosophically, the, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. But you can't find a loophole. Bruce Walkey, an Old Testament scholar, writes, God's creation reveals his immeasurable power and might. His bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and transcendent, ultimately leaving the finite mortal in mystery. Several years ago, a scientist wrote an article entitled, Seven Reasons I Believe in God. He said, consider the rotation of the earth. The globe spins on its axis at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour. If it was just 100 miles an hour, our day and night would be 10 times as long. The vegetation would freeze in the long night, or it would burn in the long day, and there could be no life. Consider the heat of the sun. 12,000 degrees at surface temperature, and we're just far enough away to be blessed by this terrific heat. If the sun gave off half the radiation, we would freeze to death. If it gave off more, one half more, then we would all be crispy critters. Consider the 23 degree slant of the earth. If it were different from that, the vapors of the ocean would ice over the continents, and there could be no life. Consider the moon. If the moon were 50,000 miles away rather than its present distance, twice each day, giant tides would inundate every bit of land mass. Consider the crust of the earth, just a little bit thicker, and there could be no life because there would be no oxygen. Consider the thinness of the atmosphere, If our atmosphere was just a little thinner, then millions of mediators now burning themselves out in space would pummel the earth into oblivion. Finally, the fact that man is capable of grasping the idea of the existence of God is in itself sufficient evidence. The scientist concludes, these are the reasons why I believe in God. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Let's move on to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So now Moses has taken us from this cosmic perspective of the universe, and he brings us down to our humble little abode, planet Earth. Now, the earth is formless and void, meaning it's uninhabitable. It's it's lacking that unique quality that makes the earth the earth. Uh, It's lacking its worth. It's lacking its purpose, most important of all. It's lacking that, that buzz and that activity and that vibrancy of life that makes the earth unique and special. Well, Moses tells us that these would come in six days of creation. You see, I think the purpose of these first two verses goes like this. I believe that the first two verses are just a general declaration of the fact that God called the universe into existence. I think the rest of the chapter, verses 3 and onward, is an explanation of how God would go about doing this creative work. So Scripture is painting this picture of God starting with a a rough canvas. The earth is this chaotic mass and it's formless and it's empty. But He's also taking great care as He does it. Because who's there in verse 2 overseeing everything? The Spirit of God. The Spirit was present to prepare the world for the human race. I love the word that Moses chose there in verse 2 of the Spirit's activity. He's hovering. He uses this verb in Deuteronomy 32.11 like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters its wings over its young. So here the Spirit is. Can you imagine a bird just flapping its wings to just hover at a standstill to provide protection over its young nest? Here in the first verses of the Bible, we come to understand a little bit about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who gives life and gives direction to our lives. The Spirit of God is always present in the Bible while life is happening, while creation is taking place. It's interesting how salvation seems to follow a similar pattern. When you look at salvation in the Bible, salvation is God's new creation when we are made alive again, when we are heading back to the place where we were destined to be, when God comes upon us, we're kind of this life that's empty and without shape and without purpose. And then He speaks into our lives and the Holy Spirit comes and He moves upon us. This is what Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So salvation is the restoration of creation. And God, He can come into your emptiness. He can come into your void if you'll let Him. If you've never asked God into your life, He will come in and He will find you in your darkness, in your emptiness, in your hopelessness. And He will breathe life into you. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Have you let God do this new creation in your life if you trusted his son? Francis Collins discovered the power of God's creative work in his life. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Collins, he was a phys- is a physician geneticist. He led the Human Genome Project. It was an international research initiative mapped out 3.1 billion base pairs in human DNA. Collins grew up in a home that did not place much importance on religion or faith, and he ended up in school trekking towards the sciences and became convinced that the only thing that really mattered in this life was that which could be measured by the tools of science. In his own words, he says, I became a committed materialist and an obnoxious atheist. And it sounded very convenient to be so because that meant that I didn't have to be responsible to anyone other than myself. Collins says that faith came in a sneaky process. In medical school, he took care of patients suffering from terrible diseases. He watched some people who were leaning on their faith, and it was this rock-solid, substantive thing that was holding them up. He didn't see it as a psychological crutch. And this was just puzzling to him. What do I do with this? So, he decided that he would explore it a little bit one day while he was in the clinic, a patient challenged him and talked about his faith. And he said to him, what do you believe? And he said, I don't know. As he walked away, he thought to himself, boy, the response I gave must have sounded thin compared to this person's strong, dedicated faith in God. I'd better do something about this. So with full intentions of shoring up his atheism and disproving faith, he decided to investigate this thing called faith. Finding the search difficult, he knocked on the door of a Methodist minister who lived down the street, and the minister took a book off of his shelf. The book is uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And he handed it to him. Now, Lewis is an interesting guy. He had been an atheist, too, and he had set out to uh, Proved the correctness of his position and he accidentally converted himself. Collins was struck by Lewis' argument about a moral law as he read this idea that there was good inherent uh, and that people were striving towards truth and those types of things and he said to himself, an atheistic scientism can't seem to make sense of of a moral law. How does natural selection create goodness in people? In fact, you would think that if natural selection was taking its normal course, that it would lead to bad morals. People doing things to get ahead. There wouldn't be this ideal of sacrificing for another person. And it started to paint a picture in his mind of a god. God not a removed God or a distant God, but a present God who cared about the details of our lives. Collins eventually trusted Christ. He knew that agnosticism wouldn't cut it because that's just a cop-out, he said. The business of saying I don't know can just be an excuse for I don't want to know. So now Colin says this, everything I do as a scientist reinforces my sense of God's presence because every new discovery is, if you believe in his role as creator, a glimpse into his mind. And I find that very meaningful and satisfying to be able to have the experience of discovery by both the natural world unveiling itself and also getting a glimpse into what God's plan was. You see, Collins came face-to-face with the Creator as he explored, and this led him into a relationship with the Creator through his son, Jesus. So my question to you is, do you know Him? Have you put your faith in Christ? Would you do something with me? Would you just put your head down and consider the words that we've talked, discussed this morning? I believe that the most important thing that you can do in this world is come to know the Creator God, the God of the universe. And the Bible tells us that the way we come to know Him is through His Son, Jesus. How do we come to know Jesus? It's by believing in a historic message. It's called the Gospel. The message goes like this Uh, We are sinful, we have separated ourselves from God, and we need salvation. So God in real time, in real history, this is why I call it a historical message, was born. He lived amongst us. The account of his life is true. These things happened. Uh, he went and lived a sinless life on this earth. He was crucified on the cross for a crime he didn't commit. And he bore the weight of the sins of the world upon himself in real time. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And scripture tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you trusted that message? If not, I would encourage you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, in the best way, know how. I do trust in this message. I trust in you. You, the God of the universe who came and lived amongst us, I commit my life to you. I want to follow you. Thank you for all that you've done. Amen.